0: I am here with my three favorite guests I think I've ever had, and we're so happy to have them back again. It is a true circus every time they come, every time I get to talk to them, with the hosts of Showtime's The Circus, John Heilman, Mark McKinnon, Jen Palmieri. Yay, I'm so happy you guys are all back.
1: Well, and you're one of our favorite guests on the show. When are you coming back? Ugh. <laughs>
0: your your wish is my command.
2: She left journalism, Mark. She left political journalism. She now just like flits around Hollywood and like talks to like yogis and stuff and, and you know.
0: God, if of- only. I wish. That sounds like a dream life. Okay. So you guys are covering all of the hottest races that are happening in just a matter of weeks now. And I guess I'm going to start with you, Jen. What the fuck is happening as we head into these races?
3: Oh. <laughs> It's uh it's very different depending on what what state you're in. I mean, the, the the um I think that the threats, there's a larger threat that hangs over all of the races. A larger threat around democracy about which party is gonna you know there's like which party is gonna control Congress. But then there's just the broader question of like what side is gonna win out, what view of America is gonna is gonna win out, and you feel that. Um, because uh, I, I think what's what is, I mean, Emily, what's distressing to share with people is how bought in a lot of Americans are to the big lie really believe it, really believe that by fighting it, they're doing the right thing, that by fighting Biden, they're doing the patriotic thing. Um, and, you know, we just spent a week in Arizona and it was so deep there. And, you know, and at some point, it, if uh, some of these election deniers win this time around, you kind of you have to face the fact like, oh wow, this this is what America is. This isn't just a few leaders that have gone gone astray. There's like a much bigger virus that has that has spread, and so you feel that pretty acutely. You know, depending on which uh, state that you are in, but it is a, you know, like that's 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 what the battle is. I said about <laughs> um, Carrie Lake, who was the um, Republican, gubernatorial candidate in Arizona, uh, a big election denier, hasn't backed off, decent chance of winning, doing really well, very telegenic, very charismatic. You know, and her Democratic opponent doesn't want to debate her and she you know, doesn't want to go down the rabbit hole with Carrie Lake, but it's like, that's what's happening. That's what th- the country is going down the rabbit hole with Carrie Lake. We're going to have to have this fight um, and sort of a prelude here in 2022. And then, you know, in 24 and it's kind of, we're going to stay at it for, for a while, but you feel it like really acutely when you're on the ground in these places.
0: MCAT, mm. I want to ask you on those election deniers, you know, it's, it's in that race that you guys had a fantastic interview on the, on the episode last week. It's in another race in Arizona there are candidates in Pennsylvania and, and, and in every state that are election deniers, there are people on the ballot who were present on January 6th and part of insurrection activities in DC Are these people breaking through? Is that message resonating? Is that the thing that they're campaigning on? And what is the appetite for that kind of message as we approach these midterms?
1: Well, it's penetrating for sure, especially when you have sixty-one percent of Republicans now across the country believing in Trump's lie. They believe in the big lie. That's you know, two-thirds of the Republican Party. Mk loves
2: that stat. It's one of his favorite. It's one of his favorite stats.
1: Well, it's because it's Because it's so frightening. It's so frightening. I, you know, it's. Uh, but I mean, there's really there's two there's two elections going on right now. I mean, there's the there's the Democratic election, which is all about protecting democracy, uh, and abortion, really. I mean, it's kind of being fought on those two fronts, and the Republican uh, Republicans are not fighting on on the economy, crime, and immigration. And, you know, they got a big boost today with the inflation numbers. And so I'd say broadly that, you know, we have kind of two uh, shifting storylines, which was, well, three three storylines. In the spring, it was like it was going to be a huge wave, Republican wave. This summer with the uh, Dobbs decision, uh, that dynamic change, it looked like Democrats maybe had a shot to claw their way back, make it close, maybe hold the Senate. Uh, you know, sort of long odds on the House, but maybe, but they were all betting odds anyway. And now I'd say it's kind of drifting back Republicans' way where it looks like, uh, you know, certainly the House and maybe even the Senate and, you know, not a wave, but a pretty significant ripple uh, heading the Republicans' way right now.
0: I want to talk about choice in this election, but I, I first want to talk about Georgia and that sort of will get us back to this conversation about abortion. Heilman, you Yes, yes it are, will. Yes, yes, I it mean, will. what is happening there in Georgia? It is there are a lot of wacky races that are happening right now. This to me, to my eye, is the wackiest. Um, we're recording this on Thursday. This will come out next week. So we have a debate on Friday evening that is yet to happen. So who knows what will come out of that. But we have a candidate who has so far endured Insane personal scandals in this race uh, and the race is still this week. You know, there's there's three points between the two candidates What is happening on the ground? Uh, Do does anyone care about these insane Walker scandals or are we post scandal in this post Trump era?
2: Well, uh, because both of my because both of my colleagues are not nearly as as self-promotional as I am Let me just say (laughs) um, The circus episode that we're working on right now is about two Senate races um, one of them, one in Ohio, and one in, in Georgia, where I am, uh, Mark's up in Cleveland right now. We were all in Cleveland at the beginning of the week. We'll all be in Georgia by the end of the week. But um, mm. and both of them, what unites those two races is that they're both races where, you know, an open seat in Ohio that uh, that you know in a very increasingly Republican state that that there's no good reason why uh, why that shouldn't be. Uh, uh, a gimme for Republicans to hold on to, except for the fact that Donald Trump came in and blessed a candidate in JD Vance, who was like maybe the worst of all the available options. And then in Georgia, where you have one of the two most vulnerable Democratic incumbents, uh, the other being uh, Catherine Cortez uh, Masto in, uh, in, in Nevada, but Raphael Warnock, who who's you know hanging on by his fingernails here, uh, a good Republican nominee here, you know, someone like let's say a, a Brian Kemp clone. Brian Kemp was leading Stacey Abrams by double digits here. You know, a I, I, I David Perdue, a uh Doug Collins, even people we don't really like very much, someone who was not horrible. Uh, would be ahead of uh, uh would be ahead of Warnock. Warnock probably healthily is the consensus down here. And I think that's probably right. Instead, you know, because of Donald Trump who created Herschel Walker not as a not as a sensation, not as a phenomenon. He's hundred percent name ID in Georgia. People worship him and talk about his football days all day long. But as a Senate candidate, you know, as Donald Trump pushed him into politics and and blessed him and, and sent him on his way, helped him win the the primary going away. And now, you know, as you point out, Emily, it's like he's, you know, he's like, he's, a, uh, he's like in the red zone of horrors, right? It's like, you know, th- he's had, everything's been bad for him from the very beginning. It was first, it was, he can't speak a coherent English language sentence about anything. I don't mean like he does not a mastery of policy. Get him to talk about evolution. He sounds like, you know, he sounds like, I don't, I don't even want to use the words. He just says... On evolution, on and on the environment, on on any policy subject, on anything substantive, he can't really string two sentences together. Whether that's because he's just not very bright or because he has suffered some head head injuries as a football player, we don't know. But then came all the personal scandals, and the race right now has been locked at at Warnock. Basically, everybody's polling has Warnock up somewhere between one and four points for the last like three months in a row, and nothing is moving that. So what does that what does that tell you? It tells you. We live in very polarized times, and that that forty some percent of the Democratic Party is you know going to vote for the Democrat, and forty percent of the Republican Party is going to vote for uh, going to vote for whoever the Republican nominee is. There are Republicans all over the place here. One of whom I talked to today, a uh, Republican strategist who was Trump's state director in in twenty sixteen, who's just like basically spoke for every person in the, in the Georgia Republican political class and was like, "Here are all the truths: one, we love Donald Trump; two, we hate Joe Biden." Three, Raphael Warnock is, is like Joe Biden, a socialist, and is driving the country into the into hell, basically not just into the dirt, but into the, something worse than the dirt. And therefore, we will stick with Herschel Walker because we we want control of the United States Senate. Every mm-hmm. every Senate seat counts, and it doesn't matter. That's that doesn't matter to us well, what he's done because Raphael Warnock is worse. He Herschel Walker may be a, a hypocrite on abortion. Uh, but Raphael Warnock wants us all to pay for abortions into the future. We're we're just, we don't care, you know? And then the last thing they all say is, what a fucked up situation we're in that we, it didn't have to be this way. You know, if we had nominated, if we had, if we had picked as our nominee uh, the, the, the Georgia agriculture commissioner, who was really the second place finisher in the primary here, we'd be up by 10, you know, mm-hmm. someone who could speak. And, and now they're all holding their breath for this debate. But knowing on one hand, like, what could he do with the debate that would make it worse than it already is? Probably sure. not anything, but you never know. The man walked out in a parking lot in Carrollton, Georgia, on Tuesday when I was, when I was there. I watched him walk out there the bulls with, now. with Tom Cotton and, 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 uh, and, and Rick Scott behind him, who had come down there to basically not talk about anything about Herschel Walker, just talk about Raphael Warnock. And he told a story about a bull, a horny bull, who had uh, impregnated three cows, notably three, and then uh, was not satisfied, but that left those three cows and tried to go off and impregnate some more cows. Now, my my lasting pursuit for the Trump for Donald Trump is with Donald Trump, everything is projection or confession. The sure. ultimate, mm-hmm. the ultimate, the ultimate Herschel Walker Trumpiness was that because that story. I'm getting T-shirts printed up with Herschel Walker's face. This is hi, I'm Herschel, and then a picture of a bull. It says I am that bull. I mean, three impregnated. Cows who we wanted to leave to go impregnate some other cows. That's he's talking about himself. Who would do that? I mean, it's not just dumb. What was the? Like, what
1: was the? What was the? Was he trying to get across a metaphor for something else? It, yes, yeah, it, it, it's, it's
2: the thing. It's, the metaphor was the time-honored political metaphor of like the grass isn't always greener. Everybody always says the grass is greener, but the grass is really greener. America is the greatest country in the world. If you really love America, you realize you know people always say that it's better someplace else, but it's really not. And that's like the grass isn't greener because the the cows that the bull is trying to impregnate that are on the other side of the fence all turn out to be bulls. Now, in my opinion, there's a chance that Herschel Walker, if he's the bull, would probably also try to impregnate the bulls. But that's a separate issue. That's the, that's the story he was trying to tell, I think, but it's so incoherent that you sit there and go... And, you, and the best thing, and the last thing I'll say about this, the best thing, the, the the whole summation of our political world was watching Tom Cotton and Rick Scott standing behind him with these looks of abject, like, I'm trying not to show the look of horror on my face, but I can't fucking believe this is happening. Get me out of this camera frame. That's the Republican well, you,
0: Party. Well, truly, that, that has been the Republican look over the last six years. <laughs> and true. you would think – at some point, they would say, I don't have to look and feel like this. I could just support candidates who are not saying absolutely insane things in public that both uh, qu- make you question their their base IQ and our sanity as a nation. But uh, we have not reached that point yet.
2: But I'll just say the only problem with that is that they would mean they would have all their voters pissed off at them sure. because they're voters. Because their voters apparently don't care about any of this. And all they want is someone who Donald Trump blesses because they still all love Donald Trump. It's like their their conundrum is – Our problem is the voters in our party who love Donald Trump, and if we we depart from Donald Trump's orthodoxy, we'll get punished.
1: Yeah. Ohio's another example, uh, Emily, just in the sense that it's a a very red state. I mean, Trump won by eight twice. Uh, The incumbent governor right now is ahead by 18 points. It shouldn't be a race at all. And yet, again, a Trump-nominated, a Trump-endorsed candidate, J.D. Vance, is the nominee, and it's really close. Because he's such a bad candidate, and the Democrats are fantastic candidates uh, uh tim ryan but um but it's it's pretty clear that just given the way things are breaking, it's going to be really tough for him to pull it off, but he's like a he's like a candidate out of a laboratory, he's perfect for the Democrats, but it's a very, very tough state to win in, but it just shows a f- very flawed Republican candidate
0: do you feel like the debate on Tuesday night changed anything or or is it sort of baked?
3: Yeah, I think so. Jen, go
0: ahead on this.
3: Yeah, I mean, what I think is that, like, you know, because I was a communications director, what you look for, because you understand that not a lot of people are actually watching the local Fox Channel, you know, news debate um, in Ohio. But you want there to be a moment that crystallizes your your opponent's vulnerabilities and that you can continue to drive for the rest of the race. And Tim Ryan definitely got that with the ass-kissing. Comment. So for those who don't know, three weeks ago, Trump came to Youngstown to do a rally for J.D. Vance. And because he's such a captive of his own ego, he couldn't just say something nice about J.D. Vance. He had to remind everyone that J.D. Vance used to not be – used to be – was once a Trump opponent in 2016. Talked about, like, Hitler's army and that, like, Trump's people were Hitler's army. And then – but then came back around, and now he's kissing my ass and you know, and then and then you know, JD got up and spoke. And so Tim was able to use that um to say, you know, like Ohio doesn't like that. They don't like an ass kisser. And, in the, and it just it goes to a larger point. It means he's a fraud, it means he's not gonna fight for you. And then from that, from the ass kisser, Tim Ryan is able to make a larger point about he's a fraud, you can't he's not one of us, you can't count on him to fight for you. And so and that's like what we're doing this episode is to see how how is it really playing out with Trump's picks and you know, because he's interested in picking a brand, right, um, he's not necessarily picking the best candidates. In this case, it's his own ego got in the way and, like, handed to Ryan this cudgel that is really could be really damaging. You know, Ryan may win this race.
0: I need to come back to Trump and his brand and his ego in a second, but but I'm not done with Herschel Walker, and I'm not done with the abortion discussion. I have I have to to ask you guys this, uh, and and Heleman, what you were saying about this Republican attitude of like sort of who cares? This is this is the guy. Uh, the attitude around the Herschel Walker scandal of impregnating a woman and making her get an abortion, and then the abortion, uh, the the so called pro life. Supporters in this country sort of shrugging and saying like, "Oh well, at least he's out there talking about pro life and um, and championing in our cause." This message is coming at a time where we really thought that Democrats were going to be able to pull out this midterm election because of the decision that came came up this summer. Where do we stand with how abortion and pro choice, pro life messaging stands? three weeks to the midterm election? Is it mattering the way that we thought it was going to matter this summer? Are people just sort of out there championing Herschel Walker and saying like, oh, well, who cares?
2: This is really going to be a, a, uh, an answer that's going to satisfy no one. We don't know the answer to this question, these are all like unprecedented things. There's never been anything like this before. you know you, you the, the stripping away of a fundamental constitutional right uh, that people had for fifty years, women had it and everybody had for fifty years is that we never seen anything like that before. and and I've always been from the very beginning, I've said, you know, in the face of of democratic women who said, we will rise up and we'll power the blue wave. I was like, I'm not saying I don't believe you. I'm just saying there's no precedent for that. And I, and all I ever know how to talk about in politics is what's happened before. So, you know, you watch things happen. Kansas was an incredible thing, and and the the Kansas vote demonstrated that in a very red state, in, a, in an election environment, it designed to 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 push through a radical pro-life, anti-abortion amendment. That you know. There was an, the broad national consensus in that very red state in the middle of August on a 105-degree day in a very small uh, – in what was supposed to be a small primary – a small turnout primary, you know, provoked a giant wave of of not just Democrats and not just uh, feminists, but of – you know, 60 percent of Kansas came out and said uh, – of Kansas voters came out and said, no, we want Roe v. Wade back basically, you know. So that was, I thought, an incredibly, not because, I mean, A, you know, I'm for abortion rights, but even if I wasn't, I would say that's a great, great, it tells you democracy works, you know, the courts threw it back to the states and the states stood up and did something surprising. That should tell everybody everywhere that if they go out and work and, and organize and, and are activists, that they can move the needle in ways that are really surprising. If you can, if you can stop in any abortion amendment in Kansas, you can stop it anywhere. That's mm. empirical evidence. It could be very powerful. We've seen around the country Evidence that there is a, been a, there was a wave of voter registration over the course of the summer by mostly by female voters, apparently motivated by by Dobbs, uh, that looked like it was going to move the needle. So I don't I discount the possibility; it still will. And, and Democrats are running on it everywhere. I mean, there are Democratic strategists who are like, it's the only thing you should be running on. Bernie Sanders had to write an op-ed the other day saying, no, 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 like we should also talk about the economy. That's how singular a lot of Democrats are in being focused on it. And I have no doubt that there are some congressional districts where it could where it could move the needle. I think there are other places where it's not going to move the needle. It's not going to, you know, there are women in Georgia who are who are motivated by it. There are Democrats in Georgia, but if you look at the state of the Georgia Senate race. Raphael Warnick is trying to pivot to that. On as he talks about, this. he doesn't want to attack Herschel Walker personally. He has some, some issues of his own personally that he doesn't really want to talk about, and so he's trying to be delicate about this. He's trying to be kind of like, "Yeah, my kind of point to the badness of his of his opponent, but in a, in a light touch way, and then pivot into policy issues that favor him, including his his position on Roe and the fact that that Herschel Walker, at the peak of his hypocrisy, is like, but would would like to see abortion banned on a national basis, right? So. Is that going to work here? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Anybody who says they know how this is going to come out in a month from now is just – is a, they're, they're, there's nothing to point to. You just have to – there's energy in, in both directions on both sides. And I will say that to Mark's point earlier, the one thing we've seen over the course of the last year is that the president's approval rating and, and therefore largely the party's standing on a national basis has – track to the economic news almost entirely. When, when gas prices are falling, the other thing that was happening in that period when things looked good for Democrats was that we were looking at the after effects of Dobbs, but also gas prices were falling and food prices were falling. And it looked like the economy might be getting back into a good place. That's not the case anymore. And so there's countervailing trends to Mark's point about not just campaigns. It's not just that there are contrary campaigns being run. There's countervailing realities that are crashing into each other. And for a lot of people, I don't know what American voters are going to do when they're challenged by, on one side, how do we fight, how do we vote for women's choice on one side? And that's a value that they care about. And at the same time, they also, care about, they also care about food prices and gas prices and immigration and crime. As Mark pointed out, for a lot of voters in the middle, they're pushed and pulled in both directions. I don't know what's going to win that fight. We've never seen it before.
1: Emily, I think one thing that's interesting is that traditionally midterm elections are about voters responding to what they believe is an overreach from the incoming administration. You know, the Democrats get elected or the Republicans get elected. They're full of themselves. They do too much. Voters come in in the midterms and, like, say, too much. We're going to pull it back. Well, this time we we have a different branch of government overreaching. And so people were responding to the Supreme Court overreaching, which was kind of an unprecedented thing. So that's kind of the X factor that John was talking about. But, you know, just with the inflation news, and you can kind of feel it out on the trail— you just get the sense that sometimes we, we really overthink and overcomplicate this stuff, and at the end of the day, a lot of it is just sort of very basic where people say, you know, things just don't feel so good out there, and I'm just going to put the other team in for a while, <laughs> you know? It's just I don't know.
3: Like, like, can i can I can I have a countervailing please, view on, uh, on, on abortion? Because I feel like, um, I know that, for example, if Carrie Lake ends up losing and Katie Hobbs wins in Arizona, like... Katie Hobbs, for better or worse, has, like, put her eggs in the abortion basket. You go to Arizona, it is all ads on abortion for Mark Kelly, for Katie Hobbs. The Republican um, attorney general candidate, the Republican secretary of state candidate, was, like, having to address abortion in their campaigns. They're trying to find ways to moderate. So in some places, it seems to really, you know, have a big impact. And then there's places like... Michigan, where it may not be number one voting issue, but Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer took that issue, defined her her opponent with it, you know, hung the no exceptions for rape or incest around her neck. And look, that race was still being pretty close. But Gretchen Whitmer was, you know, on her way to being, you know, in a very tight race. And now and now she's not. And then you see early vote numbers like the, the number of ballots requested out of Michigan, one point six million, as opposed to one point one six million in eighteen, you know. So I think it may be that it is a different kind of year, and that you know issues like abortion kind of trump some of these, may even trump the inflation.
2: But mm. but let me just let me just add the final addendum on Jen's point, which is you know she's to the big if there in in Arizona, right? Which is if Katie Hobbs wins, that's kind of what I'm saying. Is like. I'm I'm totally open to the notion that abortion will be this thing that saves us all from Kerry Lake and, and that all of those Democrats in Arizona will be able to ride that to victory. That could happen. But Jen was with Jen and I were sat together at a Kerry Lake rally in, in, in Arizona two weeks ago and said, Man, she's really good. She could win. And and I just I think, you know, there's there's some places like Michigan that Jen points to that I think partly because Gretchen Whitmer and the constitutional amendment uh, were put front and center there, where you can really see, and this is a good example of a place where the abortion politics have really favored Democrats, really made it better for Whit- Whitmer. But to me, Arizona is still a toss-up. And and if, if Katie Hobbs loses there, having put all of her eggs in the abortion basket to the genuinely batshit crazy conspiracy theory spouting Carrie Lake, we'll all have to go, well, abortion. The abortion politics played very strongly in some places, and in other places, it wasn't quite enough. And it turned out that you know that other countervailing forces drove a different outcome. I just, am, I just at this point, it's a it's a powerful force. There's a bunch of powerful forces out there, and they're and they're and they're colliding with each other in unpredictable ways, and I just don't know what the outcome's going to be.
0: Well, this is why I value you guys so much, both as as people who I watch and people who I get to talk to here. You are some of the the few national reporters who have actual wisdom and experience, you actually spend time out of newsrooms on the East Coast and you are with voters, you are with candidates in their natural habitats. And it's such a valuable thing to hear. And it's why I'm scared to ask you my last question. What do we think of the viability of of Trump in 2024? Everyone who I've talked to uh, on, on the Trump side makes it feel very, very real. Um, and I just need to know what your temperature is out in the states.
1: Well, I have a thought or two about that, which is for all my Democratic friends who, you know, are wringing their hands and getting all excited about all of Trump's legal entanglements, I say to them, given the current environment, you better pray that Donald Trump's a nominee because he may be the only guy you can beat. And I do think that. I think I do think Trump could be beat by Biden or any Democrat. I, I think he, there's enough erosion now. Uh, he'll still have that very, very you know animated base, but it's, I don't think it's enough in a general election. So, And I think he's running for sure. I mean, th- th- is, you know better than anybody, Emily, that what he craves more than anything is just attention. And there's no more attention than running for president of the United States. And he's not going to get off the stage and turn over the spotlight to Ron DeSantis or anybody else. So he's running. And by the way— there's a precedent for somebody running for prison in nineteen twenty. So he, he, the, the, the legal entanglement is not a problem for running for him
0: well, the people the people I talk to say that that is more than the attention, the ability to outrun uh, justice is the thing that will entice him and put him over the top, certainly which a factor. Is the scariest thing I've heard i
3: mean, i'm with I'm with Cat. I feel like he could be beaten. It's hard to come back a second time after you've after you've lost, even for him. There is erosion. And there are more formidable Republicans. Um, and I do think that any Republican is going to be very, is going to be tough to beat in 24.
2: I think there are three related questions. One is, is Donald Trump going to run? If he want, runs, will he win? the? What's his prospects in the Republican nomination fight? And then there's the general election. Um, I will say now that the third of those I refuse to address under any circumstances. I don't know who the Democratic nominee is going to be. I don't even I don't know whether we don't know whether Joe Biden's running for president again. So tell me who the like. Talk to me a year from now. when We know who's running on the Democratic side, who the nominee is or who the prospects are. We have a reasonable conversation about that then. And for now, it's a, not a helpful conversation. It's not one that I have any opinions about. But Donald Trump's way more likely than not to run. And the worse his legal problems get, the more likely he is to run because of the answer number two, which is that if he's indicted, he's guaranteed to win the Republican nomination. There's like, you know, as soon as it became clear how bad things were for him around Mar-a-Lago, it's like the DeSantis people were like, we can't run against him if he's under indictment. It's Donald Trump. like Everyone's rallying around him. The party has this instinctive, part instinctive, largely instinctive and partly rational in the sense of like knowing what their voters care about, uh, tendency to... To rise to his protection. I think he was very close to being in the gold watch category before the uh, Mar-a-Lago search and seizure. It was like, Republicans were very happy to be like, hey, you made America great again. Thank you very much. But you talk about the past all the time, and you don't win presidential campaigns by talking about yourself in the past. That's all you want to talk about is yourself in 2020. We need to talk about the voters in 2024, in the future. And that was kind of where it was headed. And then I think for obviously legitimate legal reasons, and I hope Trump gets indicted because I think he's obviously a criminal. <laughs> and so I'm for it for the rule of law. But do I think that it guarantees that he would be the Republican nominee under indictment? I almost certainly, I don't think anybody will almost run on a post. Everyone has to rally around him. And then you have a very strong united Republican party around a president probably under indictment running. You you know, if you do the If you do the math on the timing, they wouldn't be able to get him to trial until it won't happen in 2023. It'll be 2024. And then they'll have to delay it because he'll be running, he'll be the nominee of the party. So he can, Emily, to your point, they're not wrong that Trump is playing the game of, you know, I can't get a fair trial if I'm the nominee under indictment. We have to delay the trial until after 2024. And then by then I can be president and just drop the whole thing. That's the game he's playing. And, you know, it's not out of the question that could work.
0: God, if this didn't, entice people to vote but more importantly watch the circus then those people are beyond beyond any help you guys just repeatedly do it and do it and do it and I am so grateful for your wisdom here and on Sunday nights and showtimes the circus I'll go and watch it S- save yourself uh, learn some things I'm really really appreciative and go get them I know you have flights to catch or not catch in Jen's case <laughs>
4: Well, we've got just over two weeks until the midterm elections and a new poll uh, showing Republicans with the slight edge in the general election and lots of wackiness with Herschel Walker thinks he's a sheriff and Kanye is buying his right-wing social media platform so he can be more anti-Semitic. And uh, right into the middle of this mix comes this brand new book called The Persuaders by Anand Kiridardas, who is with us today. Let me just read the subhead of this book, At the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy. And Anand, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, your book comes out this week. I have been lucky enough to read it. It's powerful and super fascinating. And really, kind of, uh, there is an ironic element to it, because I'm thinking Really? Who's persuadable at this point? You know, you're in the middle of this complete mania in which the poles are hardened up. It feels like people play to some notional middle, but it's sort of a unicorn. Is, do these people actually exist who can be persuaded of anything at this point? But I have to assume you, uh, you and your publishers plan to bring this into the mix, bring this conversation of persuading people into the mix. And you're really coming from the progressive point of view that I should point out. Right. Um, yep. so tell me like, uh, what was your idea about writing this book? What inspired you to do it? And what is the, is there something going on in the democratic party that you feel this book needs to, is speaking to?
5: Yeah. Well, I think you, what you are, what you are reflecting and channeling, uh, in that, Lead up is a very widespread sentiment in America generally, on the left in general, among Democrats, among progressives, moderates, liberals, which is a kind of fatalism about the possibility of changing minds in a time of fracture and fury and polarization. And that's a really understandable sentiment. I think it grows out of less data for most people, because most people are not pouring over data the way you might over data, I think it just grows out of a, this, a very traumatic many years of real, what feels like kind of cold civil war politics that have defined this country in recent years. And so there's this kind of reflexive sense of like, no one's mind's ever going to change. Nothing's going to work. The problem with this, as you know from covering politics, is it's just empirically not true. Like things happen all the time that move public opinion. Like the Dobbs decision, gutting Roe versus Wade, drastically moved public opinion for a time. I I think there was a total failure to capitalize on that by the Democratic Party, as reflected in the poll that you just read. That doesn't mean persuasion doesn't happen. It means that it did happen, and then it was allowed to dissipate because of a lack of effectiveness. To take a longer view in your and my lifetime views on gay rights, on trans people, on uh, how to think about race, on gender, all these things. There has been enormous movement in how people see and make sense of the world and see and make sense of themselves. So while it is true we live in a polarized time as a matter of party identification and tribalism, there is a pretty significant group of people who, who are not, and I, I, I refuse to call them moderates or in the middle because they're, that's not where they are. One of the arguments of the book, channeling the work of Anat Shankar Osorio, a brilliant messaging consultant, is that persuadable voters are not moderates. They're not people in the middle. They are people who don't have as fully formed a worldview as other people. They may vote with the right, they may vote with the left, but they're kind of joiner voters instead of vanguard voters, right? They're not voting for fascism because they've read all the books. Like, they're voting for fascism because they haven't read all the books, right? Mm-hmm. Someone like Donald Trump, for many of those voters, it's like a vote on vibes, as as the youth would say today. And And, like, to be clear, there's a lot of people who are not voting for Donald Trump based on vibes. There's a lot of people who are voting for Donald Trump because they are committed fascists. Yes. Right? But you don't get to be president of the United States with that group alone, right? No more than you get to be president of the United States with democratic socialists in your camp alone. There is a next group that is joining with that kind of ideological hardcore. And The Persuaders is in many, it's about many things, but it is about a group of people, organizers, activists, political leaders, educators, cognitive scientists, a cult deprogrammer, because unfortunately we've come to that, who are thinking about how do you speak to that group? And I deeply believe having done this reporting, that group is still in play. That group is still worldview starved. And in my view, the, the political left, uh, what I would call the pro-democracy movement at this point, has been relatively feckless in speaking to this group, has been prematurely fatalistic has participated in this kind of culture of the great American write-off of just saying, we'll never be able to get those people. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. We move people on vaccines. We are moving people on race. We're moving people on gender. We've moved people dramatically on the economy and matters of redistribution. And I think giving up on persuasion is the road to political violence and is the road to civil war. We cannot give up on changing minds. And there are people to study who show how it can be done even now.
4: Right. And so, by the way, we've had on this program, Liz Smith, James Carville, people who say, you know, you, you need to go to where the voters are and speak to them in a certain way. And there's a notional middle that where the Democrats are giving up. And this is a debate inside the Democratic Party, right? And I don't I want to say you're uh, counter to them, but you have an alternative way of looking at it. And what she says, uh, the strategist she spoke with is that, um, you know, you need to get a, um, she compares it to a choir, you know, you need to have a, like a harmonious, joyful singing on the, at the progressive left side of it. And when the middle hears that, then they hear your argument clearly as opposed to a watered-down version of that. And you you put it another way, which I thought was really funny. Um, if one faction of cool kids in school is prone to shorts and another favors pants, you on team shorts don't win over the undecided with capri pants. You win them by getting as many people as possible to wear shorts in their presence, right? I, and this I is love that you –
5: Yeah. I love that you bring that up because, like, one way to understand my book is a 300-page plea for the Democratic Party to stop being the party of capri pants.
4: Okay, right? there you I go. I think we can all <laughs> rally
5: around that that notion. I, I love that you bring up this point because if you think about, and, and I've, I I heard those interviews that you did with, with Liz and James Carville, and, I, you know, look, I think there's a lot of different useful analysis coming from all sides of this conversation right now. It's a big, important conversation but i think if you look at the reigning democratic party theory of persuasion broadly defined the kind of the kind of default reflex of the party establishment it is persuasion through dilution right mm-hmm. uh, and what that means is you start with a big ambitious philosophical lodestar right universal healthcare for example i think if you were to look in the depths of Barack Obama's heart or Bill Clinton's heart, I absolutely believe, even though I may disagree with them on their healthcare approach, I absolutely believe that what they want in their heart is universal healthcare. Everybody would have healthcare, right? I I don't doubt, uh, this may be controversial to everybody, I don't doubt that in some basic level what they want and what Bernie Sanders want is in the first instance in their heart the same, right? Yeah. I think what, then happens for the kind of Democratic establishment is that lodestar is then translated into what do we need to do to persuade? And the answer is basically like, let's pour a ton of water in the bowl, a ton of water in the pot and and like whisk it together and then serve it to this middle. And if we can get this middle, which is often in particular in the Democratic Party imagination, this white working class voter, even though there's like all kinds of persuadable voters. But as you know, this particular kind of white, Working class voter occupies this very large imagination in Democratic Party establishment thinking, and so you start with the philosophical lodestar. You add a ton of water, whisk it together, and then like serve it to this white moderate middle. And that's and so so that's like, I want universal health care, but we're going to do like private sector insurance instead, or I want that you know. And what ends up happening is that often that white working class middle so-called, doesn't come with you anyway. Yeah. Like, even though you've watered it down, they still think it's socialism, right? Like, Bill Clinton's healthcare ideas were still called socialism. Barack Obama's healthcare plans, even though it was a completely private sector thing developed by Mitt Romney, was still called socialism, right? As you know so well. So you don't, you don't actually do the wooing you thought you were going to do. Yeah. And now you're going back to your, like, fam over there who are the people who are supposed to love you the most, your base, and you're offering them like really, really watery soup. And they're like, this soup is absolutely disgusting. I don't don't want this soup. I'm insulted by this soup. And this may sound a little exaggerated, but I think this is the situation the Democratic establishment ends up in more often than not, where Biden, Joe Biden, is called a socialist for Build Back Better. Yeah. And progressives are like, it's not enough, right? So in many ways, what Anat and others in my book are trying to do, I think is actually flip this theory of persuasion 180 degrees around, right? And in some ways my book, I think is best understood as an attempt to really turn this on its head, not tweak it, really turn on its head, which is, and, and the opposite that I think I'm trying to articulate is persuasion, not as dilution, but is standing very firmly and bravely and committedly in ambitious ideals and digging your heels in on those things. And then with your heels dug tightly into the ground, you can actually reach out much further than you could if your hand if your feet were not so tightly rooted. And so that does not mean I'm going to dilute the kind of healthcare policy I have to win over white people in rural Pennsylvania. It means... I'm going to continue advocating for something like Medicare for all, right? But outreach, I'm going to call it freedom care instead of Medicare for all. I am going to, it still stuns me, Joe, that no Democrat that I know of has ever done this. No one has ever made a video ad of what it would be like to go to the doctor if we did Medicare for all, right? I don't know, I assume you've traveled for your your work and in life. Have you ever have you ever had a, one of those healthcare experiences in Europe where like you have to go to the doctor in Europe and you just go in as an American yeah. and and it's just you're not even from there and it's just free and then you walk out? Yeah. Isn't it stunning? Like yeah. I remember I've had a few of those experiences. It's like the weirdest weirdest thing on earth for us, right? Isn't it amazing that no democrat has ever made a video and imagined vivid picture because this is like the biggest pain point in so many Americans life. No one has thought to make a $5,000 video showing us what it would be like to go to the doc, have a lump, have a pain, go to the doctor, get treated nicely, walk. And the end, they say, thank you. You know, thank you for being part of the United States of America. Good luck. That's it. Right. So that would be an example of like persuasion, not through selling out what you want to do, but like reaching people differently, making arguments for something like Medicare for all that play into different frames besides a progressive frame. I, I would argue Medicare for all, and we're just picking this one example would be one of the biggest expansions of, of individual freedom in American history. Right? Because if you ever ask, as I, I've literally done this experiment in like public spaces, like if you ask people, how many of you all have a business idea? This is America, right? Like everybody's got a business idea, right? Everybody's got some napkin idea, and then you ask people, what is the number one reason you are not doing your idea? The n- answer in America is healthcare. Like, I can't leave my current situation of employment because I do not have healthcare anymore. So how many businesses, how many small businesses are not started every year? Like, how many capitalists never get to become capitalists because they got to keep working for some asshole boss yeah. who controls whether their kid would get treatment if they got leukemia? Right. So how come we don't talk about that in the frame of individual freedom and liberty? Right. So I'm just giving you one example on one issue of what it looks like in the old way and what it looks like in the in the kind of way that I'm suggesting.
4: I want to sort of apply this to something really specific for a minute and just see how it how it falls out. I was watching the debate Friday night uh, between Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker. And Herschel I Walker— it's Officer Walker. Officer Walker, yes, yeah, Sheriff yeah. Walker. Yeah. Uh, there was this moment, you know, m- several moments where Herschel Walker accused Warnock of voting with Joe Biden 96% of the time. And he was trying to tie Warnock to Biden. And I noticed that Warnock never defended Biden. He avoided that at all costs— Because, you know, I guess he looks at some polls and Joe Biden's not popular, but he never kind of defends Biden's, you know, success. He never embraces what Biden has done. And in a way, it looks like it made him look like he was avoiding or trying to water down. Uh, You know, he's he's going towards some notional center because he's afraid that Walker is going to own that, which is that kind of skeptical, angry white dude that is the imaginary figure. You know, would you have recommended to Warnock? How would you have said to, would you say pivot right into it? Would you embrace Joe Biden? I mean, you're a progressive, and I don't know how you feel about Joe Biden, but in that case, Biden has accomplished some things, right? I mean, how do you deal with that in, a, in the real world? Yeah, I,
5: I, first of all, I think Joe Biden is a is the most progressive moderate of our lifetime, yeah. right? Uh, I don't think, you know, he's what Bernie Sanders would have drawn up in like a, an ideal imaginary, you know, yeah, uh, context. I also think he's not anybody. What he's evolved into is not what any of us would have assumed, given his background and right. context. And I think progressives have a lot of credit to take for the Joe Biden presidency being... Frankly, far more progressive and ambitious uh, than we would have expected. This guy proposed three separate trillion dollar plus spending bills in his first year. I would argue, and you know this may be controversial in among progressives. Like I would argue there's a real break from the Clinton and Obama economic consensus. And frankly, you know, and and they still do stuff that has that old caution and 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 like lobbyists still have power in Washington. like let's I'm not Pollyanna. But I think there's a way in which Biden was pushed to the left by where the energy and dynamism in the party is and Bernie's two campaigns having had a huge effect and AOC shifting the conversation, as I write about in the book. So that's kind of, I, I think there is a lot to celebrate with Biden, frankly. And that was not something I was expecting to say. This is not my flavor of, of politician, uh, as you sort of indicated. I think the example with Warnock is, is a perfect example because whether or not he's popular everyone knows he's president and everyone knows that you're from the same party as him. And everyone knows that it's probably true that you voted with him that percentage of the time. So being silent about it is you're not like keeping a family secret the way Herschel Walker keeps family secrets. Um, Like you either make meaning for voters around that association or Herschel Walker is making the meaning. Like you're not voters are not going to forget that you're associated with Joe Biden. So, what I take from that, and I didn't watch what you're describing, but like what I take from the story you just told is that the only meaning that would have been made in that moment about the Warnock-Biden connection is the meaning that Herschel Walker assigned it. That's right. That's yeah. the story. He, he That's let him frame story. it. Yeah,
4: he he framed it. And so here's
5: a different way of framing it, which is whether or not Joe Biden is at a historically popular high here is what we have done in Washington to make your life better while they were doing XYZ, while they were doing coups and advocating violence and trying to put women back into the 14th century. We were trying to fight child poverty and did. We were trying to get things built again in this country and we are. We were trying to make sure that America is the most number one country in the world in fighting climate change, and we did, right? And I think it goes back to that notion of, are you so afraid of this middle that you just want to hide? Or the kind of theory of persuasion that I think I articulate in The Persuaders is sort of maybe best understood in that like Harry Met Sally scene where uh, the woman in the, in the diner says, I'll yes. have what he's having, Yeah. right? Like, I think we want our base so passionate so riled up, we want to be so celebratory of accomplishments that the undecided people are like, "I'll have what they're having." Yeah, right? yeah. Let me let and me. When we throw, sound uh, kind uh, of vaguely sad about our own about our own achievements, it's very hard for other people to get excited about them.
4: It's so much harder for the Democrats than it is Republicans on these matters, right? And there's another sort of wild card in this, and, and you don't really address this head on in the book, but it's something that I feel like is a issue with Democrats. Carville brought it up last week, which is the media and the way the Democrats uh, present themselves in the media and how the media presents Democrats, because, uh, you know, there's this both sides, a way in which things are presented as if they have equal weight. And Democrats are themselves negative, tend to be negative on themselves. You know, there's like a almost like self-doubt built into their identity, (laughs) you know, which on one hand means they're maybe more, uh, you know, receptive and open to argument and reason. And on the other hand, they look indecisive, right? Did you see, I don't know if you saw this this week, and I just want to mention this as an aside, uh, the New York Times, and among other bad news that dropped this morning, was a little sidebar where they converse with some uh Hispanic voters who lean Republican and they were asked to describe the Democratic Party and all of them said indecisive, indecisive, and or, you know, they didn't have a a point of view. And so because there is a debate within the party about the progressive wing that you represent, and some there is some centrist voter out there who we're all trying to figure out who that is and how do we talk to them and define them and and it's not just white dudes, but that's the image that comes up in the, in the you know, the Frank Luntz's of the world. So, like, how do you deal with that? How does the Democratic Party deal with the media when the media itself also has something to do with the framing?
5: Absolutely. Like, you know? I think there's no question. I say this to my friends in the media all the time that, you know, I think we are helping to sleepwalk the country into fascism, you know. I mean, you clearly— have the liberty for in this show in this publication to speak in a less guarded and and yeah. like right and i think more people probably need the freedom you have to do that because you're not i, I don't conceive of what you're doing right now as like working pr for a side but you're yeah. just you have you have an ability to call out or, or like name things that are anti-democratic or as just like
4: yeah what it they is what are, it is
5: yeah right Um, But a lot of people at the Washington Post and the New York Times and the LA Times, under the current conceptions of their jobs, these are not people, like, failing at work. Like, there is a kind of reigning notion in America of how those places should write. And basically, that way was forged in moments when it felt like liberal democracy was a sure thing. And I don't think you or I or anybody else were properly trained for what we are now in. Right, so I don't, I don't blame this, you know, on individuals. I like, I'm not the kind of person who's like dunking on Maggie Haverman. Like, that's yeah. that's to me not the issue. The issue is we were not trained for the situation we're in. None of us was, and some people have figured it out better than others. Some publications have given more freedom those these debates about do you call something a lie? Do, you know. I was not allowed to use the word demagogue in a New York Times column in 2016. And like, you know, that it's that kind of thing. It's, it's deeply systemic and it comes from a good place, right? It comes from a desire to not have papers become PR machines and not have, you know, not be dismissible. I mean, it, it would be very, very difficult if the most important media we had were just so easily dismissible by the other side, right? Right. Um, and it already has is going in that direction. So that sobriety
4: it comes from somewhere but but can be can be tricky. Well, they've been the more- on their heels. They've been on their heels from the right for the last 20 years being told you guys are not fair. You guys are not fair. And so they've gotten into a counter habit of trying not to be Completely. perceived as nominally in the center and then the Democrats are themselves, you know, because they're mainstream press is seen as ideologically in league with the Democrats, right? Trying to prove otherwise has basically put the Democrats into a weird
5: position. Totally. But I, so I think there's an absolutely a media problem here that we need to talk about, and we are. I do think even in that environment, Democrats could absolutely perform much more effectively than they are. I think there is, first of all, I think the internal fighting is not problematic in itself. I think it is actually what healthy communities do. I think it's what, I mean, if you have real friends, like you fight with those friends sometimes. If you have a, if your family, like if you have like a loving family, you like you argue with your family sometimes. I think the arguments between progressives and moderates, it's a beautiful argument. It's not, you know, like it's not a stupid argument, you know, arguments about the proper level of redistribution and whether businesses are crucial to society or should just mainly be reined. Like these are beautiful arguments, you know, I may have my position in them, but they're not dumb arguments. Like they're, they're like really old, you know, human arguments that we will always be having. And I don't think it's problematic to have them. I think it's very important to know as in a family, like when you talk about the family stuff and like when you go outside and, you know, attend a wedding together, And if you're confused about when to have the argument about uh, Aunt Margie, you know, you can get into trouble. So we need to have family arguments. And it's really important and generative to have them. A lot of them today consist of more marginalized members of the Democratic coalition saying, hey, your abortion rights movement didn't really include me for the first 50 years. And it should. That's not like something that should be hushed and suppressed. That's important. It's really important. Or progressive saying, hey, we've been way too close to donors and big business since the Reagan era, and that's got to stop. That's not a stupid argument. It's meaningful. It's important. But I think we have to understand what in the book I call the orchestra principle, which is to recognize that at some point you also have to coalesce and understand that everyone's got their role, and to respect different roles. It is someone's role to scream on the outside and burn things in effigy. Respect it. It doesn't have to be your role. It is someone else's role to be an AOC, moving the window of of the possible, calling out power structures, occupying Pelosi's office. Respect it. It is someone like Pelosi's job to, like, herd a lot of cats, and figure out the minimum that can be done with a lot of people who represent all kinds of different terrain in this country, and like respect that. It is someone like Joe Biden's job to be what I call like the reasonableizer. Like I think he's a reasonableizer. He takes ideas that in other hands and other other voices would sound a little bit out there, and he just, like, reasonableizes them, which is what a 78-year-old white man in American life is really good for. And, like, yeah. he plays a, he plays his role well. He takes ambitious climate spending, and it's just like, oh shucks. Like, why wouldn't we do it? That's yeah. very helpful. That's, yeah. He's not the same as AOC, and she's not the same as him, and they're not supposed to be the same. And actually, those two people, I think, are people who have a respect, have found a respect for each other's different roles in the orchestra, right? And I think sometimes what you get on the Democratic side is, like, hold on, why are you playing the oboe? I'm a cellist, why are you playing the oboe? And it's like, being a cellist is not grounds for critiquing someone for playing the oboe. Like, and and I would say in the Biden era, maybe even more than, I would say certainly more than the Obama and Clinton eras, there has actually been a little bit more grudging respect across the coalition for these different roles. I think the orchestra principle is more established right now in Washington, I don't know if you'd agree, than than it was in the past. I I talked to people in the White House who kind of secretly respect the people pushing most wildly on student debt, right? There's a little bit of that FDR to A. Philip Randolph thing, make me do it, create the conditions in which I can be more ambitious. And I think it's been actually one of the great successes of this period a surprise, that, that, again, is not celebrated enough, that You really have in something like student debt, in climate policy, in various things, you have a coming together of radical activism, progressive insurgents, moderates, kind of figuring out ways to constantly be at each other's throats and at each other's backs at the same time. And that's hard and it's impressive and it's crucial for progress.
4: Well, there's no, uh, nothing will bring the family together more swiftly than the specter of fascism over the midterm hor- election horizon, you know? Or a 50-50 <laughs> Senate. Or, yeah, well, exactly. And um, I want to kind of wind down here and I want to ask you about one last thing. You have a, another section in this book, the title of which is Claim Freedom. And it's about, again, about messaging on some level. And you mentioned this earlier, but using the word freedom uh, as a way of, you know, in a, in an honest way, actually. You know, I mean, the right uses freedom as a bludgeon all the time to talk about liberty, 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 while taking away the freedoms of women and various other people, right? Um, and I was reminded of this actually a few months ago. Charlie Crist was on here; and he was now running against DeSantis in Florida, as you know, uh, saying, you know, he st- he stands for freedom. He says, uh, you know, he calls for. Florida, the freedom state, and yet he's taking away freedoms from all these people, you know, transgender people, women, you name it. So tell me a little bit about that. Dive into that for a minute, what the possibilities of that are.
5: Yeah. You know, I, th- then that really comes from, that's in my chapter on Anat Shankara Sorya, this communications guru. And I, I should say, like, you and I are having a conversation about these big ideas, but this is really a book about people grappling with these ideas and practicing these ideas and, and figuring out. And you have a lot out,
4: of fabulous reportage in here uh, with people telling specific stories. Yes. How they do, how, you know, how they're trying in this time of kind of fracture and, and
5: polarization to persuade and how they're succeeding. And so there's a summer camp with white parents of adopted children of color, figuring out better ways to educate folks on race. There is a, you know, a bunch of activists talking about how the progressive movement could be more inclusive. There's a, ca- a chapter about door-to-door canvassing, where people are figuring out when you have 30 minutes with someone on a door, how do you convince them about immigrant rights or gay rights? And, and then there's Anat, who's this messaging guru, and who, one of whose big ideas is about not conceding the frame of, like, contested frames, right? So what you, you don't want to do in her analysis, you don't want to necessarily adopt frames that belong to the other side, Right. And it may be helpful to explain this in light of that background. So she would say it's very bad for Democrats when they justify their policies by saying they're better for the economy, okay? And the reason she says that is the economy, like being good for the economy is in her analysis fundamentally a right-wing frame as opposed to, for example, being good for people or being good for working people, which is a very successful, it's essentially a frame owned by the left, right? When you are saying the Affordable Care Act would be better for the economy, you're probably not going to break through as much as you think you are because good for the economy is a brand relatively securely owned by the right. If you were to instead say the Affordable Care Act is an enormous expansion of dignity for every single person, no exceptions, it resonates with what people already think of you and how they already slot you, right? So don't claim territory that is totally owned by the other side. On the other hand, she says there's other territory that is contested territory where no one owns it. And freedom is probably the best example of this, right? If you look, you've probably seen these surveys. If you just ask for shared values, like there's almost no shared values anymore, right? Freedom is at the t- is the highest ranking value across center left, center right, far left, far right. Wow. Number one wow. value. Now, it means a whole bunch of different things to all those people and, and some common things, right? But- In a culture as fractured as ours, that's useful, right? When that frame has really strong resonance. I think part of the Dobbs decision and why women were so able to come together after that had to do with this being an assault on freedom that even some moderates and Republicans were able to feel offended by, reorganized into feeling offended by. And so Anant says when it comes to something like freedom that's contested, it's actually very dangerous not to adopt those frames as the left, because then what you're doing is you're just leaving it to the right. I would add, for my for my part, the flag is the same, right? I think the left totally, you know, concedes the flag, concedes patriotism, concedes mm-hmm. saying I love America all the time, um, and offering its own vision of America that it loves, right? The America of of abolitionism in the 19th century, the America of civil rights, the America that has you know, helped spread ideas of democracy and individual liberty, the America of progress on LGBT rights and women's rights, and the the America that is becoming a multiracial democracy, a majority-minority country, and a, at a speed that no country on earth is. That's a lot to celebrate. I'm patriotic about that. Why are we not talking about that? So when it comes to these frames of, that are contested, we sometimes have just like an icky feeling, I think, on the left that that's like not a space we should be. And I think those are absolutely spaces we should be. That that mm-hmm. territory should not be conceded. It should not be conceded that, you know, that the Christian position on environment is like environmental degradation. That's ridiculous to concede that. You know, we there should absolutely be a Christian organizing program on the left against Climate change, right? And these, so just to cite those three examples, when it comes to like adopting a kind of Christian moral frame, uh, you know, a, a a freedom moral frame, a patriotic moral. Frame. These are three frames that I think a lot of people on the left would be like, little squeamish, yeah. can't. That's not me. You can't go there. And I think it's just dumb. I think I think we should absolutely be all up in that, and we should be explaining to people why. The left is the is is the side that wants to to expand your freedom, as Amanda Marcotte said uh, not long ago. You know, there, the the far right is is running on restricting abortion and banning books. If the left cannot win elections, saying we want you to curl up with a good book and get laid, yeah, <laughs> like then we don't deserve to win, right? At some point.
4: Well, I I, I totally agree with that about the left seeding patriotism, the flag, the concept of freedom. It's just like it's there for all of us to talk about. And they never talk about it because they're so petrified by, well, going back to 9-11 and the, the, the wars in the Middle East, there was this wholesale, you know, co-option of all of that. And the right really loves stickers, man. They love their bumper stickers and they love flags. And the left being squeamish about it has been a real you know weakness i have to say yes. um and i think it's hurt them and especially with to go back to those uh, hispanic voters leaning right you know if they saw the left being patriotic these are the people who want to be americans you know they want to get out of being seen as kind of a a layup for the Democrats simply because of their ethnicity. They wanna, they want that, and and the left, the Democrats, they need to get into that business. End of uh, speech. <laughs> um, Anand Giridharadas, I really appreciate you coming on Inside the Hive. You've written a fabulous book here, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for for this conversation and for your work. I really appreciate it.